0: Let's pray once more. Our Lord and God, you have promised that as rain comes down and waters the earth, the grass makes it lush and green. So your word goes forth to our hearts and our minds. It will not return to you void, but it will accomplish what you have sent it for and purposed it for. And we thank you for that promise. We thank you that that promise is true. Uh, We praise you that you have so fashioned your word that it is living and active and uh, sharper than a two-edged sword uh, cutting through marrow and, uh, Lord, piercing our hearts and our minds with truth. And so we pray your spirit's attendance over your word this morning. Uh, We pray for help both for hearers and for preacher uh, that you would draw near that you would be glorified and honored and made famous in this place today, and that we would leave this place, doers of your word, transformed and changed by your Holy Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' mighty, powerful, saving name. Amen. Well, many of you will know that before I became a pastor, I was a jazz drummer. Um, I started learning jazz the craft of playing jazz drums when I was about 13 13 years old. And in those initial days of learning, uh, my drum teacher at the time commended to me uh, several legendary jazz drummers. So he told me, I remember uh, once or twice in lessons he told me, you have to actually do more listening than playing. You have to listen long and hard Uh, to the recordings of these people, learn their musical vocabulary, uh, learn the style and the sound that they play with. And the three guys that you see on the screen there, Tony Williams, Elvin Jones, and Jack DeJohnette, these were, I would say, my primary influences in the art form. Uh, There were several others, of course, but these three were my uh, primary jazz drumming role models, my top three that I tried hardest to imitate, uh, to copy in my own playing, of course, with varying degrees of success. Well, friends, the idea of imitating role models is a recurring motif, a recurring theme in the New Testament. You see, as Christians on this side of glory, each of us are right now in a process that the Apostle Paul calls maturing to manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It really doesn't matter if we are a four-year-old believer or a 90-year-old believer. Each of us at every stage is still growing up spiritually. And to borrow the words of Dennis Johnson, what God does in our lives is he embeds into our experience living, breathing replicas of Jesus Christ. People who exhibit a profound Christ-likeness in their actions, in their words, in how they treat other people, in their energies. God puts such Christians in our path. People who, who we can learn from, people who we look up to as role role models to pattern our own life after. So a question as we begin today, as you look back over your Christian life so far, whether you're a brand new believer or have been a believer for many decades, as you look back on your Christian life so far, can you identify replicas of Jesus or a replica of Jesus who was a role model? To you in your faith. Well, in our next chunk of Philippians, Paul now commends to the church two such replicas of Jesus, two such role models, and their names are Timothy and Epaphroditus. Remember that in 127, as we've been tracking through Philippians, in 127, right up to 218, that we ended off with last week, God has been talking to us about living in a manner worthy of the gospel. In 2.5, God has commanded us there to have, a, have the humble mind of Christ Jesus. And now at this new point in the letter, he presents us with these two people who demonstrate the features that he has been describing through this whole section. So let's go to our text The first half of our passage concentrates on Timothy. Paul starts in verse 19 by saying this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Now, right away here, what we notice in Paul is that he gives away his philosophy of life. He gives away his philosophy of life. Notice carefully, friends, that he doesn't just say, I hope to send Timothy. He doesn't just say that. Rather, he says, I hope what? In the Lord Jesus to send Timothy. See, Paul's hope to send Timothy is a hope that resides within the environment or it resides within the circumference of, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul centers the hope he has to send Timothy to the Philippians. He he centers that hope in the domain and in the sovereign kingship of Jesus Christ. Paul knows that ultimately it's Jesus and not Paul who will determine whether Timothy will travel over to the Philippians. Paul's philosophy of life is a philosophy that says this, not my will, but yours, Jesus. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. Now let's talk about Timothy. Who was Timothy? Well, it's important to recognize, first and foremost, that Timothy had been there at the founding of the Philippian church. That's an important point. But who was Timothy? Well, the first mention of Timothy in the New Testament is in Acts 16, verse 1. In that verse, he is already called a disciple. The precise details of his conversion to Jesus aren't given to us in the New Testament. We guess that Timothy came to faith through the influence of his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice, with Paul himself perhaps playing some sort of role in his conversion also. We know that Timothy was born to a Jewish mother and to a Greek father, according to Acts 16.1, and that when Timothy began traveling with Paul as Paul's missionary companion, Paul had Timothy circumcised. Not for any reason concerning Timothy's salvation but rather for missional reasons and purposes. You see, Paul was witnessing Christ to a Jewish population. He did not want to have Timothy as an uncircumcised Jewish Christian. Remember, he had a Jewish mother. He didn't want Timothy to be with him as an uncircumcised Jewish Christian, possibly hindering the witness to the Jews. And so he had Timothy circumcised. Timothy would become a constant companion of the Apostle Paul in his missionary work. Eventually, the elder Paul would put the younger Timothy in charge of the churches in and around Ephesus. But here's the really fascinating thing, friends. I was reflecting on this this week, and it brought me great comfort, in fact. The really fascinating thing. What we gather... As we read the various New Testament passages about Timothy, is that Timothy was far from being a commanding, fearless, type A sort of a leader. In 2 Timothy 1 7, Paul addresses Timothy's timid nature, Timothy's fear. And in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 10, Paul has to tell the Corinthian church that when Timothy comes to them, they are to put Timothy at ease. The Corinthians are to see see to it that Timothy has nothing to fear when he comes amongst them. Essentially there, Paul is saying This young pastor who's coming to you struggles with fear. Make sure you don't beat him up as he comes to serve you. Put him at ease. It's very interesting. So it seems pretty clear then that Timothy wrestled with fears. He wrestled with a timid nature and with some insecurities. Now he had tremendous potential for church leadership, ministry leadership, but he struggled with apprehension. He struggled with fear. And Timothy also struggled with what Paul calls frequent ailments in 1 Timothy 5.23, which seemed to be gastric issues, stomach issues. Not to mention the fact that apparently, according to 1 Timothy 4.12, there were some who looked down on Timothy because he was so young. So here's this young guy with a heart for ministry and a noteworthy gifting for ministry who lacked confidence, who was frequently ill. And, friends, I want you to notice, God used him. Amen? If you lack self-confidence, and if you have fears, and if you have frequent uh, physical ailments, I really want you this morning to take heart from the story of Timothy. God still does great and mighty things through the Timothys who are in our midst. Amen? In verse 19, Paul says, notice what he says. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. Paul hoped in the Lord that Timothy could soon go out, that he could soon go and make that arduous, weeks-long journey from Rome to Philippi and then back to Rome again. So that Paul could hear a fresh report about the Philippians and have his anxieties about the Philippians relieved. Paul hoped that Timothy would go out and come back with a good report about how the Philippians were growing in the Lord. As Matthew Harmon says, few things encourage a pastor or ministry leader more than hearing about people growing in the Lord. Now, notice what Paul says about Timothy in verse 20 as we move forward. Notice how Paul commends the timid and fearful and ailment-stricken Timothy to the Philippians. Paul says this, For I have no one like Timothy who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Genuinely concerned for your welfare. Back at verses 3 and 4 of this chapter, Paul had urged, he had urged selflessness in the church. Paul had exhorted us, hadn't he, to regard others as more important than ourselves, to not merely look out for our own interests, but to look out for the interests of others. And now Paul holds frail and fearful Timothy up as a model of such selflessness. Timothy is a Christ-like person who will be genuinely concerned, not for his own interests, as much as the welfare of the Philippians. And it's interesting in the original Greek here, the word like is translated from a word that means Of equal soul. Of equal soul. Paul says, I have no one like Timothy. I have no one of equal soul like Timothy is to me. Or as John Kitchen has translated it here, I have no one else. This is a good translation. I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. Paul himself was genuinely concerned for the welfare of the Philippians, and Timothy was a kindred spirit in this regard. There was no one like Timothy. Paul could count on Timothy to represent Paul's ministry heart in the midst of the Philippian church. Paul continues in verse 21. This is interesting. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. There was nobody like Timothy. The rest of the people, aside from Timothy, seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Now, this is a difficult verse because we know that people like Luke and Mark and Aristarchus were also present with Paul in Rome, along with Timothy. So then the question here becomes, is Paul saying something disparaging here in verse 21 about Luke and Mark and Aristarchus? That they seek their own interests where Timothy alone would show genuine Christ-like concern for the welfare of the Philippians. Well, I think that would be a pretty hard argument to make that he is disparaging these other brothers in ministry. Probably. There's been lots of ink spilled on this issue. Probably, and I realize this is only conjecture, but probably those other fellow workers, Mark, Luke, and Aristarchus, were unavailable to Paul at the time he was writing this letter. Perhaps they had been dispatched to other places on the mission field. Only Timothy was immediately available to him at the time of the writing of this letter. And Paul could bank on the fact that Timothy shared Paul's ministry heart unlike others. Who are the others? Well, probably the others here are the ones that he had already mentioned in 115 through 117 who sought their own interests. I think that's the best we can do with that issue. Paul continues in verse 22 with his commendation of Timothy. He says further... Notice this, but you know, who is he talking to? He's talking to the Philippians. You know Timothy's proven worth, his proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Timothy had been with the Philippians at least three times up to this point from what we can gather in the book of Acts. So that the Philippians had seen... Timothy in action. Timothy had been tested in a ministry setting, very important. Timothy had been tested in a ministry setting, and he had proven to be trustworthy, to be genuine, to be the real deal. His Christ-like character had been on display in front of the Philippian church. You know Timothy's proven worth, says Paul, how as a son with a father... He has served with me in the gospel. Notice now, friends, the terms of intimacy, the terms of love that Paul uses here as a son with a father. Isn't it beautiful? Remember that Paul had been a strict Pharisee, right? A Hebrew of Hebrews, as he's going to say in chapter 3, where Timothy had been born to a Greek dad and a Jewish mother. Timothy was not a Hebrew of Hebrews. And yet, notice what the gospel does. The gospel had broken down ethnic walls between these two. Christ had knitted their hearts together in the gospel so that now Paul can talk about this intimate father-son relationship that he enjoyed with Timothy. So here in the text is evidence, friends, of the great power of the gospel. Amen? Knitting hearts together, knitting people together who come from very different backgrounds. Now in ancient times it was common for a father to teach his trade to his son. Whether the trade was working with mortar, or fishing, or commerce of some kind, Father Paul had been teaching his son Timothy the ropes of the family trade. And the family trade in this case was, notice in the text, the gospel. Young Timothy had been apprenticing under the elder Paul in all things gospel, in the furtherance of, of the gospel. Together the two of the these guys, spiritual father, spiritual son, the two of them served not each other notice, but rather they served God. He served with me, right? They served God together in the furtherance of the gospel. Paul says in verses 23 and 24, I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Now notice in verse 23 that there is some uncertainty in Paul. Notice that, some uncertainty. Being a follower of Jesus Christ does not mean that we will always be certain about our future. Far from it, in fact. Paul hoped to send Timothy, but in the meantime, there were uncertainties. How would things go with Paul? How would his trial end up? Would he be freed from prison or not? Paul was unsure at this point. And for whatever reason, he needed Timothy with him until such things were ironed out. But in verse 24, notice, Paul does express more confidence, doesn't he? But notice his confidence is not his own per se, but again, it's confidence that is centered where? In the Lord. Notice that. I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. Paul is confident now, but his confidence here is in the Lord. The Lord is the one with power to work his release from prison, if he's going to do that, so so that Paul then might be able to come to the Philippians again in person and see them. I love what John Kitchen says here. He's got it right. He says this, All the apostles' life, plans, and hopes were founded upon the sovereign will of his Savior. All of Paul's life, plans, and hopes were founded upon the sovereign will of his Savior. Well, friends, we've reached a halfway point in this morning's text. Up till now, the focus has been on Timothy, Paul commending Timothy, Paul commending the Christ-like character of Timothy to us. Personally, I really like Timothy. I really resonate with Timothy. You would know if you talk to my wife, uh, she'll tell you uh, that over the now 15 years of my pastoral life, my fears and apprehensions and insecurities and recurrent depression, which I've been struggling with lately, all of those things have reared up at several junctures along that 15 years of pastoral ministry. I am most definitely a Timothy in that regard. But you know, what's kept me preserved, persevering what's preserved me and kept me persevering in the midst of my various anxieties is a conviction that the greater David has dealt a death blow to the Goliath named Satan. That's it. I'm a frail guy. I really am. But I know that God is my champion. God is my protector. I know that God is the missionary who has called and enlisted this frail guy to participate in just a minuscule way. A minuscule way in his mission. And I know that God will preserve me through adversity. For as long as he wants me alive on this earth. Every day you wake up, you're on mission for another day. So if you're a Timothy like me, I want you to take heart in the Lord today. Personally, I take great comfort and encouragement from Timothy's story. The Lord was really ministering to me through this text this week as I was preparing to preach. But let's go to the second half of our banquet today, uh, which begins at verse 25. So now we move from Timothy to this guy named Epaphroditus. It's not a name that's high on the list of baby names, I realize. But here it is, Epaphroditus. He's the second replica of Jesus who is commended to us here. Paul says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. And your messenger and minister to my need. Okay, so get this. Timothy will hopefully be sent to the Philippians later. Epaphroditus will be sent immediately. And probably Epaphroditus will be sent to the Philippians as the carrier of this very letter that we call Philippians. Now, every piece of information we have about Epaphroditus is right here in Philippians. So we don't know as much about him as we do about Timothy. But Paul does give us several instructive details here in the text. First of all, the name Epaphroditus is an indication of his pagan upbringing. The name Epaphroditus is related to the name of the Greek goddess Aphrodite, who is the goddess of love and sexual pleasure. So probably his parents had been worshippers in a Greek setting. But somewhere along the line, friends, somewhere along the line, Epaphroditus had been commandeered by the far greater love of Jesus Christ. And he had become a follower of of Jesus. Notice how Paul piles up the words here in verse 25 to indicate the intimate Christian companionship, that uh, fellowship that he shared with Epaphroditus. It's, it's crystal clear that, that Paul and Epaphroditus were on mission together in unity. Paul's been talking a lot about unity in this section. They had these bonds of spiritual intimacy. Paul calls Epaphroditus his brother, notice, and fellow worker and fellow soldier. The term brother is a family term, isn't it? Paul considered Epaphroditus a sibling in the faith. Siblings should be Close. I know not all siblings are, but it's a term of intimacy. The term fellow worker is a labor term. Paul considered Epaphroditus as a work colleague in mission. And then the term fellow soldier is military language. Paul considered Epaphroditus to be a fellow warrior in the battle to further the gospel. Again, notice here that all these characteristics were shared at an intimate level between Paul and Epaphroditus. They were on the same team going forward with the same gospel. Paul also calls Epaphroditus your messenger. That is, Epaphroditus was an emissary. The word actually in Greek is apostolos, from which we get apostle. But here it's used in a non-technical sense. Paul, uh, sorry, Epaphroditus was an emissary or a representative that had been sent out from the Philippian church to Paul, your messenger. And Paul calls Epaphroditus a minister to my need. That is, a minister to the need of the apostle Paul. The word minister here is translated from a Greek word that sometimes carries priestly overtones. Very interesting. Priestly overtones. So Epaphroditus had acted in priestly service to Paul as an emissary sent out by the Philippians to do what? To gift Paul financially and materially as Paul was confined in prison. Again, we've mentioned this already, but in this ancient culture, the only thing that Rome provided for prisoners was a guard, If you were a prisoner, you depended on the kindness of friends and on the kindness of relatives if you wanted to eat while you were there in prison. So Epaphroditus had come to Paul from the Philippian church in the name of Jesus as a minister to Paul's need. Now before we leave verse 25, friends, won't you notice how Paul combines a whole host of of images and terms uh, to describe his friend Epaphroditus. This man was a spiritual sibling and a fellow colleague and a fellow warrior and a kind of priest to Paul. Aren't these arresting images of the Christian life and what Christians are to be to one another? in relationship with one another as brothers and sisters, co-workers for the gospel, fellow soldiers on the battlefield, priests serving God by serving one another's needs. I I think we can glean a whole lot here about our relationships, the nature of our relationships with one another as believers in the church of Jesus Christ. Paul said in verse 25 that he wanted to send Epaphroditus back to the Philippians. Why does he want to do that? Well, He gives the reasons now in verse 26. Paul wanted to send Epaphroditus back to the Philippians because Epaphroditus, notice, had been longing, longing, yearning, pining for all the Philippians, notice. Paul's really hammering at unity, right? Not just some of you Philippians. He he likes some of you, but not others. No, he's longing for all of you and Epaphroditus had also been distressed. Because why? Because the Philippians had heard that he was ill. How the Philippians heard that Epaphroditus was ill, we can't be sure. Remember that there were no smartphones. Or email, or any other quick means of messaging in this ancient culture, the most likely scenario as to how they came to know about Epaphroditus' illness is suggested by Gordon Fee in his commentary on Philippians. Fee suggests that Epaphroditus had come from Rome, to, uh, sorry, from Philippi to Rome, to where Paul was, carrying the gift for Paul, and he had, as he traveled, perhaps he had traveled with one or two others not least because he was traveling with a significant sum of money, and two or three traveling together with such a sum would be better for protection purposes than just one person. Somewhere along that travel route, Epaphroditus had fallen ill with what we don't know. Some have suggested malaria. Others have suggested bubonic plague, which was also current at this time. In any case, Epaphroditus became ill and perhaps one of the travel partners had been sent back then to Philippi to return there to tell them the news of Epaphroditus falling ill and that's how they found out. Whatever the case, friends, according to this verse, Epaphroditus was, notice, distressed. Distressed because the Philippians had heard he was ill. This is important. The word distressed... This is a very strong word in the original Greek text. The only other two occurrences of this particular word in the New Testament are in Matthew's account and in Mark's account of Jesus praying in distress in Gethsemane. The word describes a strong mental distress Epaphroditus was experiencing a strong mental distress. Notice, why was he experiencing this? Not because of his own illness, but rather because his brothers and sisters in Philippi had been so concerned about him in his illness. Notice that. Epaphroditus was consumed with concern. Because fellow believers were concerned about him. I'll say that again. Epaphroditus was consumed with concern because fellow believers were concerned about him. He wanted to ease the burden that others were feeling because of his condition. So that, I want you to see this, Epaphroditus was a person who regarded others more important than himself in this very fascinating and interesting way. Paul continues in verse 27. Indeed, Epaphroditus was ill, near to death. Or in the translation of Peter O'Brien, Epaphroditus was a near neighbor to death. So whatever this illness was that had befallen Epaphroditus, it was a life-threatening illness. And keep in mind, friends, that in this ancient world, like we can sort of read this and bypass it, but in this ancient world, if you ended up with a a life-threatening illness, odds were very high that you would die. Because they didn't have anywhere near the range of modern medical help that we have at our disposal. Now keep in mind what Epaphroditus, this is a very important lesson for us, keep in mind what he was up to when death came knocking at his door. What was Epaphroditus up to? Well, he was doing gospel work when this happened. He was acting as church emissary to meet the the need of the Apostle Paul when he was stricken critically with this life-threatening illness. He was doing gospel work when he came near to death. There is another one who went to the point of death in God's service. And his name is Jesus. So Epaphroditus looks something like his Lord here. Serving to the point of death. Epaphroditus is a replica of Jesus, the suffering servant, for our consideration. Sometimes in ministry, God in his pleasure will bring a person who's serving faithfully to the point of death. Paul says, indeed he was ill near to death. And then, friends, I want you to, to, to uh, take a deep breath here. Do you like to highlight in your Bible? Do you like to circle words? Do you like to scratch things around? It's a good practice to do. Uh, Put asterisks by words. Well, the next two words in the text would be great candidates for such highlighting, circling. But God, say it with me. Say it with me. But God. Whenever you read those two words in Scripture, Everything changes. But God. Now, there is a dramatic shift in the story. As Matthew Harmon puts it, these two words signal, he says, they signal the great reality that changes even the direst circumstances. But God. Paul says, but God had Mercy on Epaphroditus. No antibiotics in the cupboards in the ancient Mediterranean world. No IVs. No pharmaceutical antidotes. No CAT scans. No MRIs. No infectious disease specialists. It didn't matter. God had mercy on Epaphroditus. God the eternal great physician, the one who had made the body of Epaphroditus, he raised Epaphroditus from the point of death to wholeness again. And Paul says here, not only did God have mercy on Epaphroditus in this case, but God also had mercy on me, says Paul, lest I should have sorrow upon Sorrow. See, the benefit of recovery and life that God mercifully gave to Epaphroditus was not just a mercy that was limited to Epaphroditus. God went one better. The same mercy that God gave to Epaphroditus in this instance extended also to Paul. When God spared the life of Epaphroditus, he also spared Paul the overwhelming and the intense grief that Paul would have suffered had his brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier died. John Kitchen is accurate when he summarizes the lesson for us here. Kitchen says this, I want you to listen carefully. God's mercy in one life is never just for the benefit of that one life but for all the lives connected relationally to that single life. Mercy, he says, to one is mercy to all. Verse 28. I am the more eager to send Epaphroditus, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. Yes, the sending of Epaphroditus to the Philippians would serve a dual purpose. Notice this in this verse. The Philippians would thrill at seeing him again, especially considering the near-death trial that he had just underwent. And secondly, it would make Paul less anxious if the if he knew that that reunion was taking place. Verse 29. So receive, Epaphroditus, in the Lord, there it is again, with all joy. That is... When Epaphroditus shows up at your door, Philippians, may the reunion be a glad reunion, and may it be be centered in and empowered by the union that all of you share together in Jesus Christ. As we consider this reunion between Epaphroditus and the Philippians, we think of the words of Jesus in Matthew 10.40, Whoever receives you, receives me. Jesus said, there would be three parties involved in this happy homecoming, the Philippians, Epaphroditus, and the risen Jesus Christ. And Paul says here, honor such men. Notice, notice that carefully, honor such men. In other words, make it a practice to honor heroes like Epaphroditus who pour out their life unto death for the sake of the gospel. Honor such heroes. And giving honor to such people is not to draw honor away from God. Rather, it is an acknowledgment of God's great work in the person who is being honored. Honor such men. And then verse 30. Oh, notice this. For he nearly died for the work of Christ. He nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now friends, here in verse 30, it becomes very clear. With the original Greek text in view, it becomes very clear that Paul is explicitly linking the life of Epaphroditus with the Savior, Jesus Christ. In Greek, the phrase that is translated here as nearly died, this is precisely the same phrase that Paul used only 22 verses ago in verse 8 to describe Jesus being obedient to the point of death. So there is a definite link in the Greek text between Epaphroditus and Jesus Christ. Epaphroditus is a person who exhibited the attitude that was in his Lord Jesus Christ, the attitude of serving God to the point of death. Epaphroditus is held up here as a model to each and every one of us of selfless suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ and for the gospel of Jesus Christ, Epaphroditus looks like the suffering servant who is his Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says here that Epaphroditus risked his life, he literally gambled with his life to do what? To complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now what Paul seems to mean here is that because of the circumstances, the Philippians could not be present with Paul. They were in Philippi. Paul was in prison in Rome. And thus, they could not minister face-to-face with Paul. However, the personal presence of Epaphroditus, who had been sent out by the Philippians, had made up for the lack of presence of the Philippians themselves. And Epaphroditus had sacrificed so much to accomplish the group objective. I want you to see that. He'd sacrifice so much as an individual to accomplish the group objective. Sometimes in ministry, God will call us to selflessly sacrifice and even risk our lives for the objective of the group. And so we come to the end of another powerful passage in Philippians. God gives us these two beautiful, Christ-like role models here, Timothy and Epaphroditus. In Timothy, we have a replica of Jesus who is worthy of imitation. Timothy's concern was the welfare of others. May the Holy Spirit massage that lesson into our hearts and minds. Concerned with the welfare of others. Timothy sought the interests of Jesus by seeking the welfare of others. And in Timothy, we have a teachable apprentice. Very important. We need teachable people in the church. Teachable apprentice who labored with his spiritual father, Paul, serving with Paul in the spread of the gospel, even in the midst of Timothy's own personal frailty even in the midst of his fears and frequent ailments. And in Epaphroditus, we have a second Christ-like person who risked his very life for the work of Christ. In Epaphroditus, we have a person whose determination to serve others meant great spiritual and personal sacrifice in imitation of his Lord. In both of these men, friends, in both of them, we see shining examples of living a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These guys are presented to us, commended to us by God in his word as role models who display the mind of Jesus Christ in terms of determined service and self-sacrifice. May God use this time in his word this morning, I pray that he will, to transform us ever nearer to the image of his beloved son. And may we increasingly look like Jesus, who is reflected in both of these men in this text. May God be glorified in us. Amen. We're going to take some silent time now to reflect on the word, um, after which I'll close us in prayer. Heavenly Father, your word is like a diamond that has many different sides to it that refract light. Uh, We turn it one way and there's a a lesson about um, something pertinent to our lives. And turn it another way and there's something else you want to say to us and show us. We thank you, Lord, that you have given us your sufficient word. It's sufficient for life and godliness. We thank you for the authority of your word. We thank you for the clarity of your word. Uh, for the inerrancy of your word, the fact that you have inspired uh, these people across uh, centuries, Lord, to to, to write what you have commanded them to write. Thank you, Lord, that we can spend time in this church under your word. And Lord God, I pray that this morning the Spirit would take what we have read and learned and, Lord, um, embed it deeper into our souls. Help us to live this word out and be doers of it and not hearers only. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.